Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm Ryan Coonerty. Along with Debbie Cox Bolton of the New Deal, I'm lucky enough to be your co-host. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports the next generation of American leaders. From attorneys generals, to state senators, to mayors, to school board members, these are the people that are pushing policies and politics that will respond to climate change, rebuild our economy, address racial injustice, and restore our democracy. These are incredibly talented people who have dedicated themselves to public service when their country and their communities need it the most. Check out NewDealLeaders.org to see what I'm talking about. Today, I spoke with Connecticut Representative Kristen McCarthy Vahey. She's a longtime New Deal leader and a brave advocate for good public policy. We talk about her work last session to increase housing and equity in her state, her new challenge as the co-chair of the Public Health Committee, and how her experience as a social worker informs everything she does. We also remember her colleague, Representative Q. Williams, who left us too soon. Kristen is as good as it gets as a public servant. Enjoy. Connecticut Representative Kristen McCarthy Vehi, welcome to An Honorable Profession. It is wonderful to be speaking with you today. Thank you so much, Ryan. It's great to be here with you. We've been friends for a long time. You've been in the New Deal since 2015. I feel like we've had a couple dinners and drinks together over the years, and I'm excited to hear about the new committees you're taking up and the efforts and policy initiatives that you're leading. But I first feel like we need to start with the terrible, tragic news of uh, Representative Q. Williams, who was a New Deal member as well, who was killed in a car accident to begin the session. And I just think it's important that we honor his memory and hear from you a little bit about what he meant to the Connecticut legislature and the New Deal community. Ryan, thank you so much. Our hearts are shattered here in Connecticut at the loss of Q, who was, as I've said to so many people, a joyful and authentic person. And he was really memorable. He brought such energy into the room and he was a justice seeker. He was funny, fully himself, and he he really loved us and he allowed us to love him. And from a policy standpoint, Representative Williams and I worked together in my role as planning and development chair and his role as the housing chair. And he really sought protections for people who are struggling with the ability to find a place to live. And he sought protections for workers and he sought educational equity. And he did so much for us as a state from a policy standpoint, but most of all as a human being. And we are going to miss him tremendously. Yeah, it's such a hard way to start what should be a a new beginning of a a legislative session to have to lose such an incredible talent and someone is so committed to the community. I should mention that my co-host, Debbie Cox Bolton, the CEO of the New Deal, did an Honorable Profession podcast episode with Q Williams, and I encourage listeners to go out back and listen to his energy and his commitment to doing good. So as I said, we are in the middle of a, of a new or, or the beginning of a, of a new legislative session. 
you are the co-chair of the public health committee, um, which, as we've seen over the last couple of years, is a critical role in uh, in setting policy uh, as we still deal with a global pandemic and also you know, increases in mental health issues, substance abuse issues, and so many other things. Can you talk about how Connecticut managed through the pandemic and then how you see your role in helping lead policy going forward? Brian, thanks for that question. I am really proud of how Connecticut led through the pandemic, led by Governor Ned Lamont, who I think took a very pragmatic approach. We were hard hit right from the beginning here in the Northeast. and. I think COVID impacted us in ways that we will be trying to understand for generations to come. We're, we're still dealing with it. As I mentioned, when we jumped on the podcast, I was looking at this week's numbers. Our positivity rate is still you know, fairly high. Um, we're all learning how to live with it. And thank goodness for both vaccines and for antivirals and mitigation efforts. You know, as we go forward into the new session and the years ahead, we need to be sure that we're continuing to invest in our public health infrastructure. A lot of times it's those not very sexy investments, our local health workers, our community health workers, who are the people doing the work on the ground, boots on the ground. We've done a lot of work here in Connecticut, and I was involved last year in our children's mental health bill. Significant work investing in trying to expand access to care but what we're hearing so much is we, we probably need to talk a lot more about adult mental health. Parents really struggled through the pandemic. Seniors really struggled through the pandemic. And oftentimes it's easier to talk about children's mental health here, fix my child, versus looking at the fuller system. Substance misuse, that is an ongoing issue in every town, in every state across our nation. And we have been fortunate that we are recipients, thanks to the work of our attorney general, for the opioid settlement funds that are going to be put to good use to employ evidence-based practices. And we're also going to be looking at making sure that we're doing everything we can in terms of preventing suicide, particularly for our most vulnerable young people, members of the LGBT community. And all that to say... We're doing this in the face of a workforce that is absolutely strained and stressed. We have shortage areas all over, and people are tired. The frontline healthcare workers have been put through, have, have really seen and been put through a lot. So we're going to be working on those issues around workforce and providing them the resources they need to help keep us all healthy, safe, and strong, as I say. Absolutely. I think you outlined the many challenges facing the public health systems in our country. I guess, how do you think about immediate needs? As you say, the workforce is exhausted. COVID is still a reality. Mental health is 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 an epidemic versus creating long-term systems and when you're under pressure to to do both how how do you how do you set priorities for your committee in terms of of where you where you're going to spend your time and attention well that's a great question i joked with some of the committee members i'm going to bring in the book math curse it's a children's book and it talks about everything in life as a math problem 
And that's true when we're dividing resources, whether it's time or finances, we have to do that. I'm a social worker by training. So prevention is something that I'm always going to insist upon. You know, that old saying, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And from a financial standpoint, and also a quality of life standpoint, we absolutely have to continue to invest in prevention, even when we are facing these, you know, major emergencies. And that's difficult to do, because as I say, with my hat on for my local prevention council, it's hard to think about teaching a middle schooler not to start vaping or smoking when you have someone who needs to be revived with Narcan. And so your question is spot on, but we we have to find a way to balance those needs and to continue to invest in prevention. And I think the other challenge to your point is moving back into a different state. We've been in a state of emergency or we were in a state of emergency for so long. So how do we take the best practices that we learned from that and move those out into some of our our day-to-day life? But I I think it is a challenge and the, the way for me is to start by listening to a broad range of viewpoints from coalition and collective impact work is something I really believe in. And that's what we're going to continue to do. I'm glad you brought up your experience as a social worker. I guess I'm curious, can you tell us a little bit about that path from being a youth minister and a social worker into elected office? And then also, what do you think that training and experience gives you as you consider policies for your state? Well, Ryan, thanks for that question. I, When I was in college, I figured I'd be a business consultant. And in fact, that was my intention. I had a job in New York City. And then I decided to do a volunteer year after college. I spent a year working in juvenile detention in one of the most secure units for girls in Massachusetts at the time, certainly under a different model of juvenile justice. And that's what led me down that path of becoming a youth minister. And then in that way, realizing I needed more skills or I wanted more skills and opportunity, not just to help families, but to look at things from an environmental standpoint. It's very important that individuals get the help that they need. And certainly as a legislator, we help individual constituents with issues all the time. But it's also important to step back and look at things more holistically. And getting that MSW degree uh, helped me to have those skills, literally to practice those listening skills that are so critical every day here in the Capitol, and also to understand systems, how systems impact one another, how they communicate with each other, and how we need to intervene at the systems and environmental level to make the broadest impact possible. So I say, you know, I'm practicing political social work every day here at the Capitol because that is what we do. We look at how levels of government work with one another, how agencies communicate with one another, and also very much how we are impacting the lives of individual citizens and families with the policies that we're creating. What do you think policymakers don't understand about the the work on the ground, whether it's for vulnerable youth or helping people get out of homelessness or other the other activities that you've been involved in when they're making policy that 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 
what perspective should they should they be better understanding when when you're trying to affect these systems for vulnerable populations on the ground? Well, you know what I what I didn't share in the last question was that I ran for office because someone asked me if I would run for local office. And so I ran for local office before being a state rep. And at the local level, you see very clearly issues that your neighbors quite literally are going through. And your question is about, you know, what should policymakers be looking at? I think that for me, I'm a big Brene Brown fan too. When we have empathy, when we lead with empathy, you know, she talks about a soft front and a strong back. I think that's really, really critical. I try so hard and I think it's really important to be able as much as possible to understand the perspective that folks are coming from. And again, to try and proactively go after the, a variety of perspectives. I think that's something that as policymakers, most of us have strong opinions and we have ideas and we're, we're excited to get things done. And sometimes we think, well, I've got this idea and I know what's going to work. But we need to be humble enough to step back and say, well, that might not be the best idea now based on what I'm hearing from people. And, and also, again, have the humility to know that you don't have all the answers. Absolutely. I want to take those lessons and then um, hear specifically about how they were applied during your work as the chair of the planning and development committee. And when you're looking at rezoning issues and density issues and other other efforts to change housing policy, where it is often the most difficult, heated conversations any elected official can be involved in. And you took that on willingly <laughs> and energetically. Can you talk a little bit about what that experience was like and what are the outcomes and lessons learned? Oh my gosh, Ryan, I you can't see me smiling, but I absolutely am. You know, here in the Connecticut Capitol, there are two committees that over the past few years have had 24-hour hearings. One was public health, which I now chair, and the other was planning and development. And I just, I feel validated in your question, just because issues around housing are so deeply personal. It's where we live. It's how we are interacting, you know, with the built environment every single day. And they are extremely contentious and very loaded. And zoning is one of those wonky things that a lot of us don't really fully understand. There is no housing without zoning in most places. And so we really did dive into some difficult conversations. In following the death of George Floyd, we had a number of community groups here in Connecticut who organized and said, look, we're one of, one of the most segregated places in the country. The New York Federal Reserve, in talking with the Fairfield County Community Foundation, has said that the, the Fairfield County metropolitan region is the most unequal in the nation. So this is a very, very relevant issue for us. We have had an increase of 13% in our homeless population. And how did we dive in? Well, we we dove in and we were willing to take a look at some of the most difficult issues that are just not very sexy. They're not the kinds of things that get headlines, but 
in Connecticut, we have a lot of very active and engaged constituents, which was amazing. And as we listened to these conversations, we had to bring some folks to the table and have some really difficult conversations. In fact, even housing advocates who have long worked on these issues weren't necessarily in agreement. So we did, you know, as much as we could, incremental change, which doesn't always satisfy folks with our zoning statutes and trying to expand what we were asking from communities in terms of planning very consciously and proactively for affordable housing within their communities. And then we created a commission with five working groups to continue the conversation and help address the fact that people wanted to be able to have a voice and to provide input. And we now have probably about 50 to 70 people who are engaged with these working groups and this commission to provide recommendations to the legislature to continue that work and to do more. We we know that we want to grow our population here in Connecticut, but this housing crisis that is that's impacted nationally is really impacted uh, pretty significantly here in Connecticut. We're really supply constrained and cost burdened. Can you talk a little bit about the modulation that you have to do as a leader, which is if you want to push new policies, you have to you have to push, but you can't push too slowly or the issue sort of dies. You can't push too quickly or you're going to have a backlash that threatens to undo maybe even what you've what you've accomplished so far. How do you think about the speed of change on an issue as complex and, and sometimes heated as uh, housing can be? Well, Ryan, remember the book that I referenced, The Math Curse? You have to be able to count. Count your votes is, is one thing, which means you have to listen to your colleagues and what they are going to be willing to support. And that was a big part of this conversation, trying to come to some compromises that would let us get the votes to be able to do something and keep the momentum moving. But also, it's about learning better which stakeholders to engage. And sometimes this is what happens in government. We silo, right? We have housing advocates who work on housing. Well, I think we're all now realizing that the workforce folks, we need housing for them too. Our business community is finally much more engaged in this conversation. So it was really difficult because there are many people who rightfully will say that this it's a moral imperative. It's certainly a public health issue. It's a workforce issue. It's an economic justice issue. It's an education issue. You know, what are the two things that impact your outcomes in life that are most predictive? Often, and this again was from a conversation that we just had recently with the Fairfield County Community Foundation, which is just, you know, one county in Connecticut, is your race and your zip code. We're all born with a race. Our zip code is something that we have impact over. And we want people to be able to have the opportunity to to transition. So there was a lot of passion, a lot of passion around the issues. Within that, some of those hearings that we had in the committee, we had, you know, conversations where people were talking about racism and classism and the emotion levels were high and there were sometimes heated exchanges between legislators. And my goal was always to try and step back, to always try and help people see the best in each other so that we could come up with the best solution. 
and to to take the temperature down. You know, I really do think, again, that's where the social work piece comes in. Our brains are most effective when we're not in the fight or flight stage. So we had to do some stepping back and really, you know, looking to the issues. There's a lot of privilege here in Connecticut. And how do we help communities develop in responsible ways? We've got coastal communities, so environmental issues. How do we look at the future of development? And certainly, you know, Ryan, you're in California. You understand these issues so well also. You know, we want to have density in the right places. We want to build responsibly. We want to make sure that our seniors have a place that they can stay in their communities where they're surrounded by those social supports, that our young people can come back, but we also want to protect and preserve our environment. So a lot of competing interests and a lot of balancing acts. Absolutely. You talked about really listening and engaging with your fellow legislators Can you talk about how you engaged with your constituents, right? This is an uncomfortable place for people to be because legislators, uh, elected officials work for your constituents, yet there are times when you have to speak truth or uh, raise uncomfortable issues. What did you find the reaction of your community to be your neighbors uh, when you were uh, taking on these kinds of issues and will continue to do so? Yeah, Ryan, I think that's a great question because as a legislator, you can't always count the number of emails that you get or hear just from the loudest voices. Sometimes that listening is about listening to the whisper. The people who aren't willing to publicly say some of the things that they're feeling. And I very much listened to the people of my community. And there were a lot of very loud voices. Some of the folks in town formed a statewide advocacy group and raised some, you know, some decent points. But many people in the community spoke to me kind of quietly and privately about, I I need somewhere to go. I want to sell my house, but I have nowhere to go. And I want to stay in the community, for example. I, I, in knocking on doors during campaign season, repeatedly over past campaigns, have met many people who are living in, you know, multi-generation settings and not by choice. You know, this summer I I was with a family, it was four generations together in one household. And so it is, there is a balance between kind of pushing ahead. But yes, we have a responsibility to our constituents. So for me, you know, really trying to talk one-on-one with the folks who are willing to engage in productive conversation too to move the dialogue forward. So also talking with local leaders, um, local elected and local the, the appointed local folks who do the work in and see every day, you know, what it means in the community and again trying to address issues and make changes there that that help to reflect. That is not an easy thing to do, and uh, kudos to you for your willingness to, to continue to do that. I guess one of the things I'm interested in is since I've known you, you have you've been like sort of consummate public servant in that whatever the issue was and whatever we we're having a panel on at a New Deal conference, you were there, you were taking notes. When I look at your biography and work in Connecticut, you are working on roads, you're working on 
on voting rights and active transportation. You're working on, obviously, mental health, public health. You're allowing access to original birth certificates for adult adoptees and uh, streamlining access to outdoor dining. You are you have your fingers in a lot of different policy areas. How do you think about what to prioritize going into a legislative session and what to focus on what, while you're there? Ryan, thank you again for that. And I'm laughing because it's true. I have a lot of interests. And you know what ties all of those things that you said together is connection. For me, perhaps again as a social worker, and my friends in town make fun of me. I will often go back to an old youth ministry icebreaker that I used to do, which is, you know, you have a ball of yarn and you hold on to it and throw it to the next person in the circle. And you realize these things that are connected. And so what ties so many of those things that I work on together is that sense of being able to be connected, right? Mental health, the built environment, transportation, and then access to voting, I think, underpins all of that. You know, so for me, that's, I know that may sound somewhat esoteric, but what also is driving that prioritization is working in partnership with my fellow legislators locally, regionally, and here to know where we're going to be able to have the most impact and also to know where the highest needs are at this point. And then the last thing I'll say, you know, as a committee chair, the work in the committee certainly drives your day-to-day life more than anything else. And I'm so honored to be able to now co-chair public health and to really get into the issues around access to care, equity, behavioral health, mental health, um, wellness, promotion, substance misuse, all of those things are, are going to be where I spend the lion's share of my time in this next session. To wrap up, I guess, let's say we have a young social worker who's listening, who sees some real flaws in the system and is, you know, uh, has been working sort of person by person, family by family to help connect people to services and, and reduce the, their vulnerability. What's your advice to them about thinking about running for office or advocating to an elected official or engaging with the political process? to change, to right some of the wrongs that they, that they see on a daily basis? Absolutely dive in. You know, I, I lost my dad this year, last year, I guess I should say now. And my dad was a Vietnam vet. He was over there when I was born. And my parents raised me with the belief that we are all responsible for one another. And I know you social workers out there, you have a code of ethics. And, you know, I, I talk, I've talked a lot about my dad this year, having lost him and about the bravery he had. He, he literally, I read to a group of seniors on Veterans Day and veterans, how he was awarded a bronze star for literally going right into the firefight and to help save people. You know, we're not all people like my dad, but we have the choice every day to step into those really difficult conversations, whether it's about housing or any other issue, labor, our workforce shortages, all of the things that we face with the ability to go in and and help make a real impact. Follow your heart. Do what you love. Don't be afraid 
you know, dive in and there are a lot of people that you can connect to and you'll never do this work alone because always, always, this is a team event. I love it. I love it. I always feel, yeah, I always feel whenever I see you at a, at a conference that, that, uh, that we are on a team together where we engage with all these issues and challenges and opportunities and uh, your energy and commitment to public service is infectious. And I think we're, we've been thrilled to have you part of the New Deal Network and to be helping all of us continue to roll up our sleeves and do the work for our communities. Thank you for your service. Ryan, it is such an honor to be a public servant for the people of my district and to be a legislator in Connecticut and part of the New Deal is absolutely a gift to be able to be with so many other amazing leaders to learn from and be inspired together. And I'm really grateful for you having me here today. Thank you. May there be fewer urgent issues in the public health space this year <laughs> uh, for you to deal with. Maybe a, maybe one less or a crisis or two would be, a, would be a fair thing. And thank you again for joining us today. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders. And keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Road Group produces podcasts. I'm Ryan Coonerty, and because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast. Mm-hmm.